Good morning. This is NPR News. I'm Chris Farrell, in for Angela Davis. Now, the housing market is on a tear. I mean, imagine, home prices are higher now than they were during the peak of the housing market bubble. More and more first-time homebuyers find themselves priced out of the market. But rents are also on the rise. Housing insecurity is acute with renters living on lower income. So, for example, a standard measure is that no more than 30% of incomes should go for rent and utilities. According to the Joint Center on Housing at Harvard, 24% of renters paid more than half their income for rents and utilities last year. And the lack of affordable housing isn't just an urban problem. It also holds true in many rural areas. Minnesota and the rest of the country are dealing with a severe lack of affordable homes to buy and apartments to rent. And the decline in affordable housing options, it was apparent well before the pandemic, but the situation is worse now. So in the coming hour, we'll discuss the reasons behind the lack of affordable housing and what policies might alleviate the strain for both owner-occupied and rental. And we'll also take your questions on what you can do now if you're in the market for a home. Give us a call with your housing market questions at 651-227-6000. My guests are Jenny Schutz, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program and an expert in urban economics and housing policy. Welcome. Good to be with you. And I have to ask you, did I get your last name right? Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. And Lisa Grant is a real estate agent with experience buying, selling, renting, repairing, and renovating homes. She is owner of Seawee Homes, a real estate brokerage in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So, Jenny, I want to start off with you, um, you know, sort of taking the, let's take the 30,000 degree view. This lack of affordable housing is national. And let's start with home ownership. What are the what are the main factors behind the dearth of, you know, homes that are available for people to buy? You know, homes that can fit in someone's budget. Sure. So it's good to remember that tight housing supply isn't a new problem during the pandemic. We've been building up to this really for the past decade since the Great Recession, and there are a number of different factors that are all contributing to this. One is simply on the demand side, we've got two historically large generations, the baby boomers and the millennials, all of whom are looking for a place to live. Baby boomers are living longer, staying in their homes longer, so they're not ready to move out and free up some stock. Millennials are aging into their prime home buying years, looking to maybe move out of an apartment, buy their first home, and there just aren't enough homes there. On the supply side, we haven't built enough homes in the last decade. There was sort of a crash in construction in the Great Recession, and we've just never gotten back to the same levels. So you have this very tight supply, not enough units coming online, and an enormous demand. Throw in on top of that, the pandemic has allowed a lot of people to to work remotely, meaning that you might be able to pick up and leave California where you were renting a small apartment, move to someplace like Boise or Austin, try to buy a house. And so we've got a lot of money coming into certain markets with people looking to buy a house and putting pressure on some places that historically haven't had a supply problem. And I mean, I do find this a stunning figure that home prices now are higher than they were in the peak of the of the housing market bubble. Now, we know the housing market bubble was followed by a bust. I mean, are the are the economics different this time around, or are you looking at, or are we looking at another bust in the years ahead? 
the economics behind housing markets are very, very different now than they were prior to the Great Recession. The the run-up in house prices in the early to mid-2000s was largely driven by changes in the mortgage market. It was easier for people to get a mortgage. Uh, there were a lot more loans being given to people with weak credit, people who didn't really have the income to support it. So underwriting, weak underwriting was driving this bubble with a lot of people buying homes they really couldn't afford. That's completely different today. There's a whole new set of regulations around mortgages. Underwriting is much tighter. People who are able to qualify for mortgages today have very strong credit income, they have money for a down payment. So this is a solid market. We're not seeing a bubble in prices that we expect to collapse. That's the good news from the financial perspective. Of course, the flip side is we're not really expecting to see prices soften anytime soon. So Lisa, what are you seeing in your market when it comes to home buying? When it comes to home buying, I am seeing a lot of overwhelmed, frustrated buyers. They are being outbid by cash offers They are being outbid by people removing the contingencies to just saying they'll take a home as is. You have remote workers coming in, putting bids in home that they frankly haven't even seen. They've only seen the pictures. They haven't actually walked into the home, but they're able to come in and put in a higher offer and a better offer. So I am seeing a lot of my home buyers, uh, potential home buyers, being frustrated by just the whole process. Now, it's been a good thing for sellers, of course, because right. sellers are receiving multiple offers and multiple bids, and and there isn't really um, any kind of you know uh, delay in there. Even though the housing market is starting to soften, sellers are having the time of their lives, right? Um they have been seeing the same offers, just, you know, cash offers, um, no appraisal needed. Um, and, and they frankly are having the, the time of their lives in this market right now. And I'm curious. So if you're a seller and, you know, you're having the time of your life, as you say, but then you go, you have to move somewhere. So are they leaving your area? I mean, how are people make, you know, you make, can make a fair amount of money. But if you stay in your area, I would imagine it would be swallowed up pretty quickly. Yes. And I have sellers who are selling their home and moving into an apartment. So you have more people that's in the in the uh, market for rental. So they decide to sell their home, get that cash and rent for a year and see what happens in the housing market. You also have baby boomers who are have outgrown their home. They have um, children who are moving back into the city and renting also. So they're saying it's time for us to sell this home. We've been in it for the last year during the pandemic when we realized that we would like to move. And what are you recommending to the first-time home buyer? I mean, uh, sort of your classic first-time home buyer, the person who's, you know, they're launching their career, maybe launching their family, and you know, they're typically looking for a smaller place, more affordable place. And does that smaller, more affordable place even exist these days? They still have um, opportunities to win a bid, but they also, um, it's just the standard of getting pre-approved, right? You need to be able to see what you can afford. And also you need to be able to show the seller that you're serious. So get pre-approved, but also they want to find an agent that they can talk with that's relatable, that's good with talking and negotiating because it's going to be a lot of negotiating 
in this uh, housing market. So as a first time home buyer, get pre-approved and also be flexible. You may find that neighborhood that you want to be in, that you love, and you have to be in this neighborhood or this home that you love, but you have to be flexible nowadays. And they may find something that you can live in within three to five years and then sell and make that profit and get your dream home. And Jenny, I want to turn now to the rental market. And again, what are the dynamics behind the shortage of affordable rental units? Yeah, some of the same fundamentals about just the number of people who are forming new households and looking for a place to rent also apply for the rental market. But one of the really interesting things we've seen over the last year, year and a half, is that within the rental market, there's a huge divergence between the top end sort of new luxury high amenity buildings and older, uh, more affordable apartments where low wage workers tend to live. The top end of the market saw quite a bit of softening during the pandemic because that's exactly where people were living who were making the jump to first-time homeownership. So a lot of the core urban markets, places like New York, San Francisco, D.C., people were moving out of downtown apartments, moving out to the suburbs and buying a home. And so there was some softening up at that high end. On the other hand, at the lower end, there was actually more competition. People who maybe had been renting a two-bedroom apartment were having to downsize because they lost a job, they lost some wages. So there was actually more competition at the low end. What we have seen, though, in the past probably three months or so is that even the high-end rentals are picking up. So vacancies are going down, rents are going up. Those fantastic deals where you could get three months of free rent uh, a year ago, those are gone. Um, there's just you know There's been a real return of people who are kind of waiting out the pandemic until their jobs got back to being in person. People are coming back into cities and we're seeing very strong demand in kind of the core urban locations. And I find this uh, just a stunning figure. And it, it's a report out from the National Low Income Housing Coalition. And I'm, and I'm sure you know all about this, but it says no state, county or city where a full-time minimum wage worker putting in 40 hours a week can afford a two-bedroom rental and a one-room rental only in 7% of America's counties. And so when we're looking at the, 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 the rental units for lower-income workers and families, this just seems like an intolerable situation. It is, and it's been intolerable for 20 years now. Wages just haven't been keeping up with the cost of housing. So if you think about it, sort of the, the low end of the rental market, there's a floor below which rents can't fall because they're just operating costs for running a building. So even kind of an older modest apartment building, you know, the landlord has to pay the mortgage and the property taxes, some operating expenses, some maintenance on the property. So it's almost impossible to find an apartment that rents for less than about five or $600 a month. But there are people who earn minimum wage who are working full time and they don't earn enough money that they can afford to spend five or $600 a month and still have money left over to pay for food and healthcare and transportation. So the, the low end of the wage market, there's really just not a lot of room there. That's compounded by the fact that we just don't provide a lot of federal subsidy to low-income renters. The U.S. spends less money supporting low-wage renters than any other developed country. There are a lot of people who just need some extra cash to pay the bills, and we don't provide that kind of support. And I want to get to Janet in a dine in just a moment, but I do want to ask you, Jenny, um, 
the eviction apocalypse never really quite happened during the pandemic. And I don't want to minimize uh, the people who you know did lose their home, were pushed out of their out of their shelter. But now as the some of the protections are coming off, the eviction protections are coming off and the economy's back, but it's not fully back. Um, what's going to be the situation for for renters and the risk of being evicted? That really depends on where people live. Um, so the, the federal eviction moratorium was supposed to provide somewhat similar protections for renters all over the country. But it turns out that how that gets implemented varies a lot across states and even across counties within the same state. The eviction process goes through the court systems. Judges interpreted this differently some states and localities still have an eviction moratorium that extends past the federal moratorium. And so really, whether people are going to be pushed out, whether landlords can be forward with an eviction depends on where you live. I will say that we didn't see kind of the, the cliff of evictions that we were anticipating at the beginning, but there's been kind of a slow trickling. So people have okay. moved out of their apartments over time. The lease ends, they move someplace else, move in with friends and family. So we don't actually know how many people have been displaced, but there's been a lot of pain. Let's go to Janet in Edina. Janet, what is your, what is your question or observation? My observation is I'm one of those people in the market for a home. And I am in Edina, one of the most expensive communities here in the metro area. So last week I saw a house which I could probably get in, uh, and it was at 333000 uh price. Uh, but those homes in Edina literally are nearly impossible to come by. And within hours, as I had suspected, it was off the market. I didn't even get to see it <laughs> to be able to put in a, uh, a bid. Uh, so the affordable housing is really pressing people, even of modest means, uh, in places like Edina. So uh, that's why. And ironically, I live in an apartment where I'm paying more than if I would be in a mortgage on a 333000 home. So that is my... Uh, predicament. Yes. So, and uh, well, thank you so much for for calling in with with your comments. So, how do you think you'll just going to wait this out? How do you think you'll deal with the situation? Just keep looking, keep looking, and hope that you find something, or look in different markets. I am continuing looking. I I live here in Edina, and we have a program called Come Home to Edina, a second mortgage, which I, I am counting on to help me bridge the gap between what I get in my mortgage uh, from the bank and what the actual market is asking for. I am not closed out to looking to uh, close neighbors such as Richfield, but incidentally, it's equally just as expensive. Uh, homes closer to Edina are pricing relatively high based on the proximity to Edina and so is Bloomington. So for now, for the next year, it looks like I'm just stuck, um, but I am renting, paying way more than what I would pay for a mortgage. That's my conundrum. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for calling in. And Lisa, her conundrum, uh, does this resonate with you? It does. It resonates with a lot of my clients. Um, they have become frustrated um, that they're not able to um, to purchase the home that they, they like. 
and they get caught up in the emotions of the bidding war and the fact that the home has already sold and it just got on the market within a couple of hours. So I tell my clients to take a step back because you want to protect your mental health first, right? You want to make sure that you're not um, overly invested in a home or a neighborhood. Take a step back. And the best time to re-enter the market is during the fall once school has started and you have the holidays coming up. Buyers tend to get distracted by the holidays and they, they quit looking. So now is your time to get back out there and still keep looking during the holidays. Keep having that aggressive um take on the fact that you you want to get into a home as soon as possible. And sometimes it, it may just make sense to take a year off and just say, let's build some more income, some more savings. You may miss the low interest rate, but it may all uh, even out once you start saving more money to get into that, um, into back into the market. And Jenny, you know, Back in the um, the bubble years and then the bust, there was you know a stream of commentary, which, which was actually quite reasonable about if people had only compared the total cost of renting to the total cost of home ownership, they would have realized that they should be renting, not owning during the during the bubble years, because it was a better economic deal. But two things: one, it seems to me, even if you're doing that calculation, both are expensive. Plus, you still have to come up with the down payment, as uh, as Lisa was saying. Yeah, and we, you know, part of what's driving the demand to buy right now is the fact that interest rates are historically very low. That makes it cheap to borrow money and cheaper to buy. So there are a lot of people like your caller who do the math and realize that they could be owning a house and starting to build some equity for less money than they're spending every month on their rent. That does push people to try to get into the market. We'll say that uh, you know interest rates are probably not going to go that high that quickly. And so if people have to wait for six months or a year, it's not going to make a big difference. We do see more supply coming online in some markets. So there may also be a chance six months from now, there may be more homes available for people to move into. But it's really just hard to predict what the future will look like. And so you know, when you look at a, an issue where... Um you know, supply is well short of demand, whether you're talking about owner-occupied homes or rental, the answer typically is, well, build, build, build. Yes. And one of the reasons why we don't have enough homes, particularly smaller homes, starter homes, is that it's become very hard to build those kinds of homes in many parts of the country. Um, so if we think about it, for instance, like a townhouse or maybe a condo in a multifamily building, those are more affordable kind of entry-level homeownership. Those are also uh, buildings that could be used for rental housing. But local governments across the country have zoning that by and large makes it hard to build anything other than a single family detached home with a yard. That's the most expensive kind of house. So we have these rules that are pushing housing supply towards more expensive homes, making it hard to build smaller, cheaper homes. And then we turn around and say, well, why is it that there aren't any starter homes? It's because <laughs> those are illegal to build. <laughs> and what are you seeing, Lisa, uh, in your region in terms of you know, starter homes, the supply of starter homes. She's exactly right. There is no starter home there. They're actually, um, you know, it's it's right. We've been building about 1.3 million homes a year. And the National Association of Realtors say we're about 3 million homes short. So we've always been short for the last decade since the uh, 2006 uh, Great Recession and the housing bubble. 
And, um, you know, it, it takes the local county and government to step up and say, we need to fix this problem. You know, there's no silver bullet to building, to solving the chronic national shortage, but we need a national commitment from local government to say we need to build more affordable housing. And one of the um, disturbing wealth gaps in our, our society is the huge gap between um, black home ownership in white home ownership. And the, you know, the market conditions that we're talking about, Lisa, do you see this worsening that situation? Are, 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 are black ho- potential homeowners just simply priced out of the market? What are you seeing? This this market has worsened the longstanding racial disparities in homeownership. Um, African-Americans are unable to have the cash reserve they um, they are using the home buying cash down payment system to help them close that gap to having a starter home. And this market is definitely, you know, worsening that disparity. And that really gets to this whole issue about, you know, creating intergenerational wealth of being able to pass wealth on to future generations. Yes, it does. And that's what everyone is talking about now as far as generational wealth. And it's very frustrating to uh, to start that when you, you can't even find a home to purchase. And Jenny, so what is being done in terms of addressing the, the wealth gap here? I mean, when you look at the, the typical American family, the if, if I'm looking at the numbers right, home ownership is the key. Um, we may talk a lot about the stock market, talk a lot about the bond market, but when it comes to typical family, it's about home ownership. And so what's largely driven this gap, as I understand it, is big differences in home ownership over time. Differences in home ownership and also differences in how much money people have made by being homeowners. So there are whole layers of, of disadvantage that have been built into the system, particularly for black households and to a certain extent for Latino households because their families had a harder time buying homes because of legal restrictions. They weren't able to build money. We know that young households uh, buying their first home, white white first-time home buyers are much more likely to get cash to help with a down payment from their families. Black families don't have that to give to their kids or grandkids because they themselves weren't allowed to build wealth. We also saw during the uh, during the boom of the early 2000s, when Black and Latino households bought, it was much later in the cycle, closer to the peak of, of the housing prices. They were more likely to take on a subprime loan, more likely to go through foreclosure. So there was an enormous loss of wealth that came out of the foreclosure crisis. And that's put families and communities at a real disadvantage now trying to get back into the game. Well, let's go back to the phones and... John in St. Paul, what is your your question? Well, I was wondering about the investment companies that are picking up all these houses across the country. And I've heard that that's one of the main reasons why there's a shortage, because they can pay for these things in cash. They're so big. And then they just give high rents. Uh, John, I'm glad you called in with that question, because I'm really curious about the answer. And I'm going to ask, I'll start with you, Jenny, and then I'll go... Lisa, for your observations, but Jenny? Yeah, nationally, the investment companies are still a pretty small share of the market. Um, That doesn't mean that they're not players in some local markets. 
they do tend to be looking in particular areas. So they're more likely to buy homes in, say, a suburban area where there's a subdivision with a lot of similar kind of homes where they can kind of buy things up in batch a little bit. Um, we have seen a growth in that market coming out of the Great Recession, more interest in single family rental properties. And we're now actually starting to see some companies that are building single family homes intended as rentals from the beginning. That's clearly a growing segment, but it's still a pretty small share of the market. Most homes are still being bought by individual homeowners who plan to live in them. And Lisa, are you seeing these um, single family homes for rental and the, the actions of the uh, these investment companies? I am not. I have only seen one investment company that purchased a home um, in the last two years, and it was a fixer-upper home, right? So she's right. There's a small share of investment companies purchasing home nationally and locally here in South Carolina. There, There is not um, a great big increase of investors buying home. What I am seeing is that you have remote workers who we're living in the big cities like New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco, and now they're able to work remotely. So they're selling their homes and their homes are worth up to a half a million, almost a million dollars, right? And so they have this cash that they're able to come into the smaller suburban areas, cities, and purchase a home for cash. So they're not a big investment company. They're just someone that had a home that was marketed very well into their previous city, large city, and they have this cash reserve to come in and put that cash offer in and buy out the local um, community in that neighborhood. And it's been a long time since I've been to Charleston, but from my memory, it's beautiful. It's it's wonderful. Charleston is uh, one of always the top cities in, in any kind of magazine. So, yes, I'm kind of biased, but um, <laughs> we're also seeing that in Minnesota also, right? People are yep. leaving the big cities and they're coming into these smaller communities in the suburbs and they're able to purchase a home for cash because they sold their million dollar home out in New York or in uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco or the bigger cities. So that's what we're seeing right now. Jenny, I want to ask you, um, I mean, we're all aware of this, but, you know, a lot of cities and counties, you, you had touched on this earlier, you know, they use zoning to prohibit the kind of multifamily rental housing in many neighborhoods. And, you know, is it just time for neighborhoods to change? It is if we want people to have a place to live. We've unfortunately locked in a lot of our cities into patterns that developed in the 1950s and 60s when there weren't as many people living in this country. And so people had had room to have a single family house with a yard in cities like Minneapolis and Washington, D.C. Large amounts of our land got built as these low density neighborhoods. The population is just bigger. We need more homes. It's also become a lot more important in the job market for people to be able to be close to their work, particularly in these large cities that have a lot of well-paid jobs. So there's a ton of demand for people to live in the urban core, to live in walkable neighborhoods that have restaurants and stores and retail. And we just have made it impossible to build enough homes in those places and homes at a diversity of price points and rental points in neighborhoods that can accommodate people with different incomes. So let's go to Kate in St. Paul. And Kate, uh, what is your what is your observation? Um, my observation comes from the point of view of a small uh, a mom and pop landlord. 
So I have two questions that I, I'd like you guys to talk about, and both of them refer to um, the accountability role that local government may pl- need to play a, a stronger role in, in because they create. They are another reason why there is an unaffordable housing. The first one is taxes. For example, in my local community of St. Paul, we have a possible tax increase for the city of St. Paul of 6.7% for this coming 2021-2022 uh, year. Okay. However, on the books, there's a referendum saying that you can ca- they, they want to cap r- rent uh, increases by 3%. So do the math there, and as a local landlord, a small landlord who's paying a mortgage, how do you, how do you deal with that? 3.7% differential. Um, I mean, we, we, since 1998, since we've been, uh, been a small landlord, we have not raised our, our uh, rents the way everybody in the media seems to think that small, you know, these uh, landlords do. The other question, and, and it, that doesn't even, uh, and the other question is with zoning. You know, earlier in the program, you talked about um, unaffordable housing for starter homes. But I also see in my local community that these two or three bedroom bungalows are torn down and then they put up four or five bedroom McMansions in their place on a small plot. We need a diversity of, of housing and, and we need to understand that two or three bedroom bungalows, they're a good thing because whether you're entering the market at a young age or starting to uh, end, uh, leave the market at an older fixed income age, we need all of these houses and zoning might need to not allow the teardowns. Well, thank you so much for calling in. And um, let's start out uh, with you, Jenny, and let's start out with your question about, you know, taxes and then this movement to cap what you can charge on rent. Yeah, local governments are in a really difficult predicament at this point. Um, The last year and a half has been very expensive for them. Uh, They're having to provide more public health services than they have before. And a lot of local governments have seen their revenues drop off, um, particularly places that depend on things like uh, hotel and restaurant taxes, things that are tied to business activity. They've simply lost revenues. So local governments all around the country are coming up with creative ways to fill their budget gap. Um, The federal government has stepped up and provided a lot of assistance, both uh, during the the stimulus and the recovery, and there are very large amounts of kind of unrestricted funding going to local governments that can help them keep providing services without having to lean on tax increases. But again, local governments have very different fiscal situations, and it's hard to know sort of specifically to St. Paul what what they could do otherwise. It does put a stress on, uh, on landlords if they're not allowed to pass along costs, you know, and the, one of the troubles with capping rent increases uh, at a blanket amount for the whole city is that individual properties and landlords have different circumstances, right? Some properties are older, they may need an investment in order to remain habitable and safe for the tenants. Typically, landlords are able to pass that along. But if there's a cap and they can't pass along these costs, then landlords may let their buildings get run down um, or they may decide also not to be landlords if it's not longer profitable to do it. And I do worry that particularly smaller landlords may decide it's not worth renting out their properties and we may lose some properties in the affordable rental stock. And also, and I'm curious, but it seems to me like small landlords are part of the community and 
a lot of times as you get into these bigger, bigger companies that have lots of rental units and they can hire lawyers that can, you know, understand what the the various rules and regulations are, you kind of lose that community connection. Yeah, there's there's room in our housing market both for big buildings owned by corporate landlords and for smaller buildings that are owned by mom and pop landlords. It's true that a lot of the smaller landlords are people who live in the community. They may have owned a home, they moved to a new home, kept the old one and rented it out. So a lot of people own, say, one or two properties in the city where they live, and just per, you know that's a source of income for them, and it's a source of rental housing for people who need a place to live. There is also room, though, to build more, particularly the newer housing tends to be in big buildings that are professionally managed. So we want to have a diverse set of rental options that are available. Both mom and pop landlords and professional companies need to know what the rules of the game are. And one of the real difficulties of the eviction moratorium and the rental assistance is that it's been very confusing for landlords and tenants. What are the programs that are available? What kind of help do they get? Applying for some of these programs has been very complicated. So even though there's money there to help landlords and help tenants, they haven't always been able to get access to it. And Lisa, um, I know I, I've shared the, the, this point of view, and I'm curious about uh, the second part of her question when she's talking about sort of the need for a diversity of housing. And you see these small places being knocked down and these very large places uh, replacing them. And it's a little bit troubling, although I'm not quite sure what the policy implications are, but it's kind of troubling to see um, these changes. It is troubling. And I would say that a lot of the small mom and pop landlords are actually also real estate agents. So we're out there, including myself, and we attend the city council meetings and we attend the government planning meetings. And before the pandemic, we were there face to face. And and she's right. They're the bigger, larger investment companies that have the uh, the rentals. They're not there. So you're losing that uh, community face to face. And so they don't understand the rise in the taxes. But it's very troubling to see this. And it's happening all over the nation that they are tearing down these, you know, two bedroom, two bath homes for a four, five bedroom because you have multi-generational family living in these homes. But you need that diversity of smaller first-time home buyers and also people who are downsizing from that four to five bedrooms and two to three two to three bedroom homes. We need that diversity. And do you see um people who are, you know, of, of retirement age who are downsizing competing with the first-time home buyer for the same home? They are. They are competing. We have a limited amount of uh, 55 and older communities. And so they are competing with first-time home buyers, millennials who are just starting out. But then they've also decided, hey, I'm just going to rent because I can't find that home. I can't downsize to that two-bedroom, three-bedroom home, townhome, condo that I want. So I'm actually going to be in the market with millennials also for renting an apartment, and that drives up the uh, demand for rentals also and the prices of affordable renting. Let's go to Jim in uh, Wayzata. And what is your question, Jim, has to do about incentives? Jim? All right. Well, we'll move on to uh, Julie in Edina. And Julie, what is your what is your question? Uh, my 
It's more of a concern. And I want to acknowledge we do need change to our zoning in order to increase density. But I have seen a project that really raises a lot of red flags in terms of the quality of housing that is being proposed. And so, you know, I think we need to have really strong guidelines going in because, you know, you don't want to have, for example, a condo being offered as an affordable unit that is $300,000 and it's, you know, 520 square feet uh, in a structure that doesn't even come with sheltered parking and a structure that doesn't even have an elevator. So I'm thinking, you know, we have to recognize that with this drive to bring in affordability, there are going to be people who are looking at profitability. There always will. And it just would be absolutely heartbreaking if, you know, you end up creating housing that is marketed as a great way to build equity and all of that. And it really is not a good investment. So that's my comment. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And, um, Jenny, what would you? What is your reaction to her comment? Yeah, there's there's a lot of pushback from people who currently live in single family neighborhoods and don't want their neighborhoods to change, um, and that's understandable. People are attached to where they live. They know their neighbors. They like the surrounding. They move there for a reason. Um, but it's really important to take the larger view of the city and the region for a region like Minneapolis to grow, to be able to attract and retain younger workers who are starting off their career. There have to be enough homes available both for rent and for ownership at different kinds of price points. And those homes have to go somewhere, right? So we have sort of two choices. We can either replace these single family homes with maybe a four unit or a six unit building that expands the housing supply in the core urban locations, or we wind up building a bunch of houses way on the outskirts. That's mostly what we've been doing, but that then exacerbates uh, driving, makes for longer commutes, that contributes to climate change. So the urban infill housing is really important for climate concerns, for affordability, but it does mean that people who live in those neighborhoods are going to have to be willing to accept some amount of change in their neighborhood. And Lisa, what is uh, your perspective on her question? I agree. Um, you know, I've had... Um, sellers who have sold their house in neighborhoods because of the change of building uh, condos and four quads, multifamily homes. But it has to be a, everyone has to be open to change, right? Yeah. Because this is something that's been going on for years and you may have not noticed it until it's time for you to buy or sell or until a family member needs somewhere to stay. So we all have to be open to just the possibility of changes in the neighborhood. Let's go to Jackie and Sioux Falls. And Jackie, what is your, what's your observation? Is about tiny homes? Yes. Hi. Thank you all so much. I'm absolute pleasure to speak with you. Um, kind of talking about what she had just touched on about opening those possibilities to a lot other, you know, different types of neighborhood. I think um, I grew up in California and, I love that there's been a great initiative in Southeast uh, Sioux Falls where there's been a lot of conversation um, with uh, millennials about having tiny homes and communities, uh, putting aside uh, some, maybe some land grants and trust so that we could build uh, communities. 
why we'd have to do such a thing, I feel like, is because as a collective, we're stronger with securing the land. Uh, there's very rare land without those covenants and restrictions. I think it's very intimidating when you go to city council meetings locally, where a lot of the major developers are um, friendly or very knowledgeable with uh, board members and things like that. And it just kind of puts this strain on the relationship to kind of even approach or be seated at the table to be considered um, to develop a potential community that's cost effective. And that would bring a lot more, um, not just single family uh, housing, but kind of as some people have touched on as well as be able to purchase homes for maybe extended family as well. So, so it's a collective to, land yeah. ownership model. Yes, and I think it's been, it's that kind of model has been a little bit more um, palpable to some people versus if I purchased three to five acres for a quarter million out here. I think a lot more people would be upset if I decided to move my whole family from California and uproot them and build six houses on that said property. Um, but I think it's been more of inclusion, kind of looks more, I think, or I, I've heard everything from like commune <laughs> um, to uh, yeah. European, you know, um, where they do like the, the food and home exchanges and things like that, where they've just built this, this community. Um, but I think this kind of also ties back into other people's feelings of um, who do you want to live nearby or what do you want to bring in? And unfortunately, I think it's all relatively very selfish that this is our homes are such a commodity. So, Jenny, this, uh, you know, honing in this idea about collective land ownership. Yeah, there are a couple of different ways that we've done this traditionally. One is through something called a community land trust, where there's a usually a nonprofit entity or a public entity that buys the land um, and then will essentially let low-income households buy a home on it, but there's a cap on how much the home can appreciate. So you get to live there uh, at relatively low cost. If you decide to move, you don't get to take as much of the gains with you, but that can be an affordable way to do homeownership on a fairly small scale I think one of the other points that the caller brought up is just we're trying to grapple with how we can have families that look a little bit different than they used to, multi-generational families who may want to live close together, but not all in the same single family house. And there are a number of different ways we can do that architecturally and financially. But, I, you know, we see certainly growing demand for multi-generational families to have a space together where they share some space and can provide child care and elder care and just company and support for one another. And Lisa, the move toward multi-generational families, um, are you seeing this? Yes, I am. Um, ever since the pandemic, people want to take their, their their parent out of the nursing home or want to have them closer to them. So you do see a multi-generational family. But I also see where you have millennials and Gen Z coming in saying, hey, it's cheaper for us to purchase this home and to have another couple or have my friends rent out a room. So it's sort of a give or, give or take, right? Do you want to build these collective communities or do you want to have a sub suburban home where you have four or five cars parked into a single driveway because they're renting uh, rooms out to their, their friends or family? So everyone has to be open um, to these changes that's going on. Yeah. So let's go to... Um... Let's go to Cliff in Minneapolis. And what is your question, Cliff? Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, so my question is, I'm 
going to be a first time home buyer here and I'm I'm pre approved. Um, but with the the market the way that it is, um, and the home prices that are out there, I'm finding that I, I don't really I can't afford most single family homes and so I've been looking at potentially just buying land further out from the city and putting like a manufactured home or building a home on that land. And I guess I just wanted to ask um, both of you if you think that's a good idea or if I should just continue renting for a while longer until home values go down. I'm just trying to get some some feedback on that. And just one quick question. How long will your commute be if you, let's say you did buy buy land and then put a manufactured home on it? Uh, So it'd be at most like a half hour, 40 minutes. I don't want to move too far away, but I was looking... Like in like the Ham Lake area, like off sixty five. Okay, well, thank you. Um, so, Lisa, the you know, you're not in this area, but the idea of buying some land and putting a manufactured home on it in this current environment. It's a great idea. I I know as an agent, I should probably still be trying to sell you a home, but <laughs> it's it makes sense. It, it makes sense for him. It's a great idea. If you can find land and you can build, just be careful as far as making sure you're able to build a home or actually put a, a sewer system or well system on the property for a mobile home. If you can get that all lined up, I would say go for it. Go for it and get involved in that city because you want to make sure that you know, within a couple of years, they don't start pushing you away and, and starting to build all around you, right? So get involved in that community in that area. But that's a great idea if it works for you. And I think it's uh, in this market that maybe that maybe the only choice that's uh, affordable for him at this time, which is a great idea. Well, let's go to we're getting well. We still got some time. Let's go to Kevin in uh, Invergrove Heights. And Kevin, what is your 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 prop? Nope. Okay. So um, we're not going to be going to Kevin, but I do want to ask his question, which is: Is the problem that we're seeing right now partly panic buying? And I'll address this to you, to you Jenny, about panic buying driving up prices. There is definitely a psychology that goes into the market, particularly when you get to this stage. People feel like prices are only going to go up, interest rates are low, people want to make a decision. Um, and so some people are stretching themselves more than they should. You know, I get nervous when people do things like waive the contingency, so waive an inspection contingency or appraisal, because you can get yourself into a home that has some serious problems without knowing it. Um, you know, but I can understand also why people feel they need to get in. You know, typically prices go up and down. More supply is coming online. If you can't afford to buy something that fits your lifestyle and your budget now, it's not like you're never going to be able to buy. And the other thing to remember is it's okay to be a renter, right? Rental housing is a great option. It gives you flexibility. You can move if you need to. Um, so people shouldn't feel like homeownership is the only option. If you want to be a renter and put a little bit of extra money into your 401k, so you're still building up some savings, but there are other ways to do that besides buying a home. And Lisa, your perspective is, are you seeing panic buying or, or not? There is panic buying. And I would say there is no bubble. There's always going to be supply and demand. So people will still want to buy homes. But what's going to happen is that the prices will eventually start to limit and level out and there'll be less competition and less bidding wars. So there is a panic buy, but just be patient because it is going to soften a bit. 
And well, we are actually running out of time. And this has been a wonderful conversation. And I really want to thank uh, both of you. And I want to thank all the the listeners who called in with their questions. And I apologize to the ones that we've left on the line, but we are running out of time. My guests are Jenny Schutz, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program, and Lisa Grant. She's owner of Seawee Homes. It's a real estate brokerage in Charleston, South Carolina. And this program was produced by Kelly Gordon. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Chris Farrell, Brent Williams, Catherine Richard, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.